Your stories matter. They really, really do. They touch lives. Your stories are worth sharing. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. Hi, friends. Today, we have guest authors on to share their personal stories. So if you missed this a few weeks ago, we did round one of Publish the Personal Podcast Edition, but this is the second of three. And what it is, is that I lead a class called Publish the Personal, where I teach writers how to write personal essays and get them published. And I did in the spring a podcast edition where I taught writers how to get their work featured on podcasts. And part of that class was that they wrote and recorded a piece for Heart of the Story. And it's so powerful to hear the stories told in the author's own voices, as you will hear today. It makes their amazing stories even more amazing. So if you're saying, I want to get my personal essays published, never fear. I'm going to be leading another round of Publish the Personal, and that class begins on August 25th. So you'll want to head on over to nadinekennyjohnstone.com under the Workshops tab and sign up. Spots are already filling up. So let's dive into these stories. So today, the focus of the stories is on transitions. The authors who are going to be reading their work out loud happen to be talking about the theme of transition. So I gave them the topics to write about healing, hope, or following your heart. And it just so happens that these authors wrote about what it's like to be in the midst of change, to be making hard decisions, to be grappling with a lot of emotions, to be going through a journey. And we're going to hear first from an author who writes such a powerful piece about what it's like to face a hard decision around whether or not to have surgery. So I will let her introduce herself. My name is Betsy Armstrong, and I am a writer and intuitive eating coach who likes to write about family, feelings, and sometimes food. I live in Chicago and Wisconsin and Las Vegas, Um, and my essay is titled My Fall from Grace. It's been almost 10 years since I fell down the back porch stairs. One minute, I was standing on the top step, hurrying to get out of the rainy mist, and the next, my foot slid across the step, and I went horizontal. I landed on my back, then my elbow, then my back and bounced, bounced, bounced all the way down. I laid at the bottom stunned, worried that I'd done something irreparable. It turns out I did. I have scoliosis, which is a curvature of the spine. Diagnosed when I was 17 years old with a 50 degree curve, my case is considered severe. 
Even so, most people have to look closely to notice the way my left shoulder drops, how the hump of my rib cage protrudes on one side, or that my right hip rides higher than its counterpart. When I bend over at the waist, my torso makes a C shape, veering left out of my pelvis and curving around like a piece of cloverleaf intersection. The doctors, back when I was a teenager, recommended an operation that involved putting two metal rods down either side of my spine to crank me straight. I've always considered myself lucky that my parents didn't force me to have surgery, although they consigned me to a life of crookedness. For a long time, I ignored my scoliosis and merely lived with it. Nothing hurt, and so I used my body. Movement was a religious experience. I ran marathons, completed triathlons, and competed in bodybuilding contests. Inhaling, exhaling, muscles humming, arms pumping, feet barely touching the ground. There were moments, hours, days, maybe years, when it felt as if motion were heaven itself, as if I defied gravity and flew graceful, strong, and unstoppable until I was a mere speck in the great big blue beyond. My spine was good until suddenly it wasn't. Five years before I fell, I went out for a run and returned with a broken pelvis. Although it healed, it was the beginning of the end. The pain, mostly absent before, began to visit me regularly. My fall down the stairs became the middle of the end when the pain never stopped. Throbbing, aching, High-pitched screams inside me, which couldn't be heard, only sensed, unrelentingly. I was certain an invisible fork was twisted in my back, turning the sinew of my muscles into lumps of agony. I've tried all the cures and then some. Hours of physical therapy, chiropractic adjustments, acupuncture sessions with dozens of needles, Pilates, BAR, NIA, which is neurointegrative activity. I've talked to pain psychologists, had spinal injections, meditated, done cranial sacral massages and biofeedback, and gone on anti-inflammatory diets. I've gulped pills and potions, hung myself upside down, and worn patches and shoe inserts and all manner of braces in an effort to make the squeezing vice of pain release me from its grip. Now, 10 years later, I'm at the end. I've exhausted all remedies and myself. The pain has beaten me and I cannot fight anymore. My body, once so free, has become a jail. As I bow into submission and acceptance, I take comfort in knowing I've spent myself, that mine at least is not a case of unfulfilled potential. After 41 years of avoiding surgery, I'm 58 now, and I finally decided to do it. It is the only thing I haven't tried. I spoke with my surgeon last week and learned I will have 20 screws drilled into my vertebrae from T10 to S1, attached to three titanium rods that will build a cage around my weakened spine and straighten me forever. It will take a full year to recover from the nine-hour operation, and I will never bend my back again. Will I ever rediscover my grace? Might I? I don't know. There is no guarantee that the operation will be successful. I could end up worse off, still in misery, but inflexible, or even paralyzed if the surgeon slips. Still, I hope. I hope I will escape the pain. 
that I'll find some freedom within the confinement, that I'll find some peace in the middle of the inertia. I hope desperately that my fall from grace will be the beginning finally of something better. Thank you for listening. You can find me at betsyarmstrong.com. That's B-E-T-S-Y-A-R-M-S-T-R-O-N-G.com. Wow, right? That was so incredibly moving. When Betsy recorded that, I was in tears. I just felt that her writing was so visceral that we could feel the narrator's pain. We could understand this hard decision that she was facing down and the hope of getting relief from the pain. And I so appreciated how Betsy really let the reader into the narrator's world of experiencing all the things that one goes through on a health journey. So I really hope that you'll check out Betsy's writing. This is just one example of the many, many moving, powerful pieces that she has written. So please go check her out. Next, we'll hear from another author who is going through a transition. And this change and journey that she is on is a walking through grief journey. And I mean that both literally and figuratively. And you'll see what I mean as you hear her piece. Hi, I'm Robin Fisher. I'm a writer and a musician, former teacher, and currently a sunset chaser who lives on Maui. I write about walking, healing, and grieving. My essay is titled Pilgrimage. Alone, I slog up the steep hill toward Laguna de Castilla on the Camino de Santiago. It's the third week of my 500-mile pilgrimage in northern Spain, and today, for some reason, has been a rough one. I'm tired. As I climb, I see apparitions of people I know and love along the path, but they are dead. I hold my breath as I turn the next corner, expecting the body of one of my new pilgrim friends to be lying there too. My intellect knows that these images are crazy, just grief, but my emotions believe they are real. My face is wet with tears. Breathe, I tell myself, just breathe. My heart pounds in my ears. I think about the first day of this pilgrimage more than two weeks ago, how exhausted I was walking over the Pyrenees. This hill is harder, but how can that be? I am stronger now than I was then. I stumble. I stop walking to catch my breath, lift my head and look around. I am transported to an alternate reality where everything is heavy, moving in slow motion, but is also breathtakingly gorgeous. The valley below shimmers like gold sequins in the late afternoon sun. Just seven months before I started my pilgrimage in Northern Spain, I lay beside my husband, Bill, watching his itty bitty breaths. He was dying. I set my alarm to ring every two hours so I could turn his body and give him morphine. It was a Wednesday afternoon when he took his last. I didn't have to wait for the next one not to come. I knew there would be no more. We had been holding vigil for six days at that point, but I had been his caregiver for two years. 
two years of hypervigilance combined with boredom, two years of crises, two years of trying to hold on to every single moment, knowing the decline would be fast, two years of too little sleep, too many potatoes, and not enough exercise. My body felt like it belonged to someone else. I needed this long walk. The way of St. James chose me, I think. I knew that a day hike or even a week in the wilderness would not be enough. I had been curious about the Camino ever since I read Shirley MacLaine's book years ago and had wanted to go to Spain since Spanish classes in school. I also knew two people close to me who had recently done it and they guided me in the planning. I was being led. It is said that the healing power of the Camino comes in thirds. The first third tears down the body. Everything hurts. But I needed that focus on my physical well-being. I needed to feel my lungs move air in and out and feel my muscles lighten and loosen. I needed to find my own pace of life. The second third of the pilgrimage breaks down emotions. When I quit thinking about my sore feet, emotions bubbled up for me to acknowledge. Not just thoughts about Bill thoughts about my first marriage and divorce, my children, my not such a straight line career path, my parents, my embarrassments. I spent quite a lot of time in forgiveness too, especially to my younger self for the mistakes she had made for crap that she had put up with from others. I forgave those others too. It was like an end of my old life review. Then the last third of the pilgrimage with my body and emotions broken down, there is an opening for the great mystery to come in and begin to rebuild what was broken down. That was how it was for me. My grieving journey these past four years has been a pilgrimage. That first year after Bill died, I felt as though I was recovering from a long-term illness myself, one that required a lot of time and rest. Then Sometime in that second year, the red hot poker in the stomach pain changed to a dull ache and my emotions moved from depression to anger and then to moments of peace. That was also the year I scattered Bill's ashes, started dating, sold my house, and finished writing my book. I kept climbing that hill. There's a sign in the pilgrim's office in Santiago that says, your Camino begins when your Camino ends, maybe. I'm at the final third of my grief pilgrimage. I really can't say yet. The Camino may be a straight line, but a grief pilgrimage is not quite that linear. And old love, I've come to understand, doesn't die. Instead, like those gold sequins on the hill that day, it shatters itself into a million pieces, lighting the way for those of us left behind. Thank you for listening. You can find my more of my writing on my website at www.robin with a y paso p a s s o w fisher f i s h e r dot com. What I love about Robin's writing and her voice is that it feels so meditative. It feels so reflective. It feels so self-aware and also honest. It's like we're right where she is when she is going through all of her grief and the various stages of that. 
to know Robin is to know such an authentic soul. And I think that that really comes through in her pieces as she writes candidly about the many emotions of grief. Please check out Robin. She is multi-talented. She, in addition to being a writer, is also a performer. She's very musically inclined, and you'll want to hear and see all of her things, so go over to her website and check her out. So finally, we're going to hear from another author who talks about grief that we're left with in the wake of loss and what we hold on to and what we let go of. My name is Stan Engelson. I sometimes write as S. Severin, my first initial and middle name. I've always liked the idea of a pen name since we studied Mark Twain in high school. Besides, S. Severin sounds so literary. And if I'm honest, it gives me some distance from my material. I write personal essays that revolve around being gay and AIDS and loss, but it's not as maudlin as it sounds. I have a sense of humor, really. Until recently, what name I used hadn't mattered. I've been writing on the download for years. No one but writing groups and teachers ever read my stuff anyway. I have to say it's Nadine who pushed me to get published. I've been working on a memoir about my experience during the AIDS crisis for so long I'm embarrassed to tell you. I have a good hundred pages that are a direct result of working with Nadine. An excerpt from that memoir is about to be published in Memoir Magazine, which assumes there's a whole memoir to be excerpted from. It's under my pen name, S. Severin. I also have a piece that was recorded for WBEZ, Chicago's local NPR station, about my experience with COVID and how this is not my first pandemic. It's called Go Home and Try Not to Die. I told you I had a sense of humor. Although they renamed it To Isolate, To Rest, and Try Not to Die. It's published under Stan Engelson with a truly terrible picture of me. The wound that will not heal. The heart of many, if not most of my stories, revolve around grief. Even when I willfully try to write in another direction, the wound that will not heal finds a way into my prose. My first partner died almost 30 years ago, two days after my 27th birthday. He was my first love, my first relationship, my coming out, and 30 years later, his death still reverberates throughout my life. We were together a little over four years, which doesn't sound like a lot of time now, but then it constituted half my adult life. The loss was and still is profound. When he first died, the grief was physical, as if a hole had been ripped out of my chest. It came in waves that crested an uncontrollable sobbing. I learned to recognize the buildup and make a hasty exit to somewhere alone. Although I was often alone, grief is a solitary thing. There are some unexpected aspects of grief. The morning fog upon waking, I wondered, why am I alone in this bed? Followed by the stabbing realization that he's gone. I relived that loss each day for months. The pronoun we took on its own agony. I was no longer a we. Every time I tripped over a we, that same stabbing realization would hit again. In my current relationship of over 20 years, the we was a long time coming. In those early years, I would go to the cemetery frequently. It was a place I could grieve openly. It felt as if I could hold the grief back knowing that I had this appointment later at the cemetery. Eventually, I kept it to a few times a year, and now I go once a year, sometimes not even that. The tide ebbed, but the waves still came. The first year, or more honestly, the first few years, the grief could overtake me at any time, and even when it was not at a crescendo, it was always there. Everything in those early years was filtered through the grief as if it was in the center of my field of vision and the light could only come in around the edges. Sometimes the grief would move off to the side and allow more life in, but it could leap front and center unbidden at any time. Eventually, after some years, it mostly stays to the side, but never gone. I asked myself, why do I still write about this? 
Perhaps it is to educate, to remind the world of the AIDS crisis, or how to treat people who have been through loss, but I suspect I still write about it because it still affects me. I tried once to write about Christmas with every intention of staying away from the grief. I was writing a piece on Christmas decoration. I intended a fun, light piece, and it was fun, but maybe not so light. I can't talk about Christmas without talking about that first Christmas without him and how I pushed through even though it was so painful. Even all these years later, there are side effects of that loss. In 2015, when gay marriage became legal, my current partner of then 10 years decided to tie the knot. It seemed right, yet I was hesitant. In couples counseling, it became apparent that my hesitancy came from suffering that first loss. At one point, I blurted out, but you could die. Losing my first husband nearly killed me, and I wasn't sure if I could survive it a second time. I'm still not. We did get married. It was pointed out that married or not, the risks were the same. But I can't help but wonder where else the fear of loss has shaped my life and held me back. The recent COVID epidemic showed me how the grief from that past is always under the surface. My current husband was sick and bedbound for months. A sick husband, a raging virus in the community was so reminiscent of my early 20s that at times I was not certain if my feelings of fear and anxiety were old grief resurfacing or a reaction to what was happening in front of me. Over the years, grief subsides, or more correctly, becomes less central, less a daily consideration. At times, I can feel it coming. The Christmas cry starts to build sometime after the tree goes up, and eventually, I give it release. My birthday is always a reminder of that loss. And still, other times, it comes unbidden and for no discernible reason. I wish it wasn't so, but the grief has become a part of me and continues to shape me and will likely always be the heart of my story. Stan's writing is always so moving to me because it is both very honest, but also even in the midst of being very raw and uh, showing of deep emotion, there's always a glint of hope. And so I've known him for years. He first came to a memoir class I was teaching years ago, and I am so glad that he gets the great honor of being the first man to grace this podcast besides my husband and son, because his writing really touches the soul, both with emotion and with hope. And I hope you will check out his writing as well and follow him. Thank you for listening to these stories. I truly feel that the fireside chat, the old time kind of feeling of storytelling in a group is an art that we need to hold on to and we need to bring back in some ways. It's been lost. And this is my attempt to have that time, that circle sharing time of storytelling because it makes us think about our own lives. It makes us feel less alone. And it connects us truly deeply as humans. Maybe this will inspire you to share your own stories at the table tonight or even around a campfire. But your stories matter. They really, really do. They touch lives. I hold a million stories in my heart, and I'll be at a crux in my life, a crossroads, and I'll be searching for wisdom or advice, and I'll remember a story that I heard years ago, and the lesson from it fits perfectly in that moment in my life, and I'll feel like I've, I've gotten a nugget of wisdom that was there all along that I'm hearing again. So you never know who your story might touch might impact 
your stories are worth sharing. So thank you to Michelle Rado, another supporter of stories with her podcast, Daring to Tell. She's a wonderful producer for this show, and I'm so grateful for her. And remember, everyone, every heart has a story, and every story has a heart. So if you love this podcast, go ahead and take a screenshot, share it with someone, pass it on, send a text message. That's the best way that you can support me and the other writers who have graced this show. See you next week.